A warning, this episode features dramatizations and discussions of graphic violence, sexual abuse, and incest. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. The story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single story about the questing beast. Today's episode combines elements from multiple Arthurian legends to reveal the nature of this mysterious beast. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Mythical Monsters. Since our earliest days, humanity has told stories about fantastical creatures as a way of processing and discussing our deepest fears. Each week, we examine one of those legendary beasts and seek to understand what they meant to our ancestors and what they can still teach us today. Last week, we looked at the manticore, a chimeric beast from Persian mythology, with the body of a lion, the tail of a scorpion, and the head of a man. This terrifying man-eater has been used to represent various forms of evil, and as a warning against the vices of lust, greed, and gluttony. Today's monster is another hybrid creature that combines elements of several real-world animals. Though in the case of the questing beast, the combination leads to something as perplexing as it is frightening. Most frequently described as a monster with the body of a leopard, the hindquarters of a lion, the hooves of a deer, and the head of a snake. This creature from European folklore was the obsession of many of King Arthur's knights. As always, you can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll cover the questing beast after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It is known as the questing beast, the beast glottisant, and the bizarre beast. And true to this last moniker, it's one of the most mysterious and confounding creatures in Western mythology. The questing beast comes from Arthurian legend, the body of work that comprises the stories of King Arthur and the Knights of Camelot. 
The surviving versions of these tales are drawn from a variety of French and English medieval texts, most of which were written from the 13th to 15th century. The questing beast is an elusive, recurring figure in these tales, appearing to various knights at brief but critical moments. While the beast itself is veiled in murky symbolism, it's treated as a creature of great importance and a prize worthy of the most pious hunters. Several great knights dedicated their entire lives to its capture. In the centuries since the Arthurian legends were written, historians have undertaken their own quest to discover the meaning of the beast. Despite their efforts, the bizarre creature has defied interpretation at every turn. Today, it remains as elusive as it once was to the knights who hunted it through the woods of medieval Britain. Palamedes knelt on the forest floor, examining the hoofprint in the wet earth. Its shape matched the print a deer might leave, but was so large that his hand fit in each half of the print with room to spare. Palamedes looked up at the sound of riders approaching. He stood and turned to face the sound, drawing his scimitar. An instant later, two knights on horseback came charging into the clearing. They pulled up sharply on their reins, coming to a halt in front of Palamedes. Which way did it go? The lead knight demanded. Quickly now, my good sir, we have no time to waste. Palamedes gave a confused look. Perhaps you should tell me what it is you seek, and I will tell you if I've seen it, he said good-naturedly, though he kept a tight grip on his sword. The lead knight groaned in exasperation. The abomination, he exclaimed. Why do I bother? If you had seen it, you would not ask. Step aside. I will at once, Palamedes said calmly. If you can point me on my own way first. I am Sir Palamedes of Camelot, and I'm looking for the man they call King Pellinore. The lead rider lifted his visor, revealing a worn face and an unkempt white beard. He glared at Palamedes, eyes lingering on his curved sword and his dark copper skin. You are a knight of the round table? he asked. Palamedes simply nodded, unsurprised by the note of disbelief in the man's voice. Arthur must be truly desperate for supporters if he is knighting Saracens. Pellinore remarked to his companion, who still had not moved or spoken. He turned back to Palamedes and gestured impatiently. What message do you bring from Camelot? Palamedes smiled and sheathed his scimitar. I bring you no message, my good King Pellinore, only myself. A few weeks past, my fellow bannermen rode out in search of the Holy Grail. It was decided that an unbaptized man should not seek the cup that held the blood of Jesus Christ. So Arthur has sent me to you, that I might aid you on your noble quest. My sword is yours to command until the task is done. King Pellinore stared at Palamedes for a long moment. Then he turned to his companion and said something under his breath. The second knight clambered down from his horse. Palamedes stepped back, realizing just how gigantic he was. He stalked to the hoofprint and knelt to examine it. At least a day old, the large knight shouted after a moment. 
King Pellinore sighed and climbed out of his saddle. We might as well rest the horses then. It would be best if these lasted longer than the previous ones. Palamedes shifted uncomfortably, confused by how little impact his arrival seemed to have made. Shall I gather some firewood then? he asked. King Pellinore shot him a look of disdain. No fires. We are upwind, and the smoke will alert it to our presence. If you wish to help, you can search for fumets. Palamedes looked confused again. King Pellinore stalked a few yards away and reached down, picking something off the forest floor. It was a large, round dirt clod about the size and shape of a melon. He returned to Palamedes and thrust it into his arms. Fumits, inform myself or Sir Bors if you find any more. They're better than tracks for determining where the beast has been and where it's going. King Pellinore stalked away again before Palamedes could respond. He looked down at the clod, which was already starting to come apart in his hands. He glimpsed the edge of something white at the center. A sound like the howling of three dozen animals floated through the trees, startling Palamedes and causing him to drop the fumet. King Pellinore and the large man he had called Sir Bors were already racing for their horses. Saracen, I trust you have your own steed? shouted Pellinore. It's tied nearby, Palamedes shot back. Very near, I hope, said Pellinore as he hoisted himself into his saddle. The beast will not wait. Then he dug his heels into his horse's flanks and took off into the forest, followed close behind by Sir Bors. Palamedes bolted in the other direction, abandoning the dirt clod. It had split in half upon hitting the ground, and the white object had tumbled out. It was the skull of a large dog. The questing beast's most famous appearance comes from Thomas Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur. This 15th-century Middle English work compiled and reworked many of the older Arthurian tales into a cohesive but still largely episodic narrative that tracked the rise and fall of Arthur and his knights. In the first section of Mallory's story, a young Arthur goes hunting in the woods near his castle at Carleon to clear his head. He's only been king for a short time at this point, but already young men from around the land have begun to flock to his side. Among them are several of the children of King Lot, accompanied by their beautiful and mysterious mother, Morgaze. After sleeping with the strange woman, Arthur finds himself plagued by nightmares in which his kingdom is torn apart by griffins and serpents. The king stops to rest beside a pool and is suddenly startled by a sound like the baying of 30 hounds. He turns toward the sound, expecting to see a hunting party coming toward him. Instead, a strange creature emerges from the woods. What was the creature King Arthur encountered on the bank of the spring? The passage states only that it was the strangest beast he ever saw or heard of. More attention is paid to the sound it makes, which Mallory describes as the questing of 30 couple hounds. This sound is the most consistently described attribute of the questing beast, as well as the source of its name. The word questing comes from a Middle English verb questen, which can refer to barking or baying, as well as the act of hunting, 
Glatissant, the beast's other name, is a medieval French word that also refers to the barking sound a hunting dog makes. The questing beast's name therefore contains a hidden double meaning. It's a pun that describes both what the beast does and what it is. It quests, or barks, and is also the subject of quests. The knight's quest is one of the most important motifs of the Arthurian legends, and a popular theme in medieval romantic literature. Knights errant were characters who would roam the land in search of noble adventures, performing good deeds and protecting the innocent. The figure of the knight errant was closely tied to the concept of chivalry, a code of conduct that combined Christian values with a warrior ethos and rules of etiquette surrounding courtly life. Chivalry prioritized bravery and patriotism alongside piety, fairness, and mercy. The quest was seen as the purest encapsulation of chivalry and the surest path to knightly glory. Some of the quests from Arthurian legends, such as the search for the Holy Grail, carry deep religious significance. Others, like Gawain's encounter with the Green Knight, involve the idea of chivalry. But the purpose of the hunt for the questing beast is far less clear. Catching the beast is seen as its own reward, which makes its value hazier. The beast's name and the emphasis on the sound it makes over its appearance both point to the same idea, that precisely what the beast is matters less than the struggle to capture it. Whether or not that struggle is actually worth the trouble is another question. Coming up, Palamedes encounters the beast and learns its horrible secret. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Palamedes woke before dawn. He could still hear the snores of King Pellinore and Sir Bors rising from their tents. The trio had been traveling together for weeks, trailing the mysterious creature known as the Questing Beast. When he had left Camelot, Palamedes had been eager for the opportunity to partake in a noble quest, which was to be the first of his career as a knight-errant. But so far, the adventure had failed to live up to his expectations. Tracking the questing beast had been tedious, weeks upon weeks of monotonous wandering, punctuated by brief moments of excitement whenever they stumbled upon a fresh hoofprint or dung pellet. Finding, carrying, and dissecting the questing beast's dung pellets was Palamedes' primary duty. Each night he would spend hours picking them apart and then piecing together the puzzle of animal bones he had found inside. So far there had been a few dogs, two deer, and one wild boar. He had relayed the information to Pellinore, who had made meticulous notes in a journal he carried. Exactly how this information was supposed to help them track the beast, Palamedes couldn't say. By this point, he was desperate for a glimpse of the questing beast, simply to break up the monotony. Even then, it seemed unlikely that he would get to see any real action. 
King Pelinor had made it clear that he alone was allowed to kill the beast. Something about it being a family quest that had been passed down for generations. Palamedes walked away from the camp until he reached the edge of the clearing. He unfolded his mat and laid it out on the ground before him. Then, as the first rays of dawn peeked over the horizon, he began the first rakat. He lifted his hands to either side of his head, then crossed them before his waist, reciting the words of the dawn prayer. Glory be to you, O Allah, and all praises are due unto you, and blessed is your name, and high is your majesty, and none is worthy of worship but you. I seek refuge with Allah from Satan, who is accursed, in the name of Allah, the most gracious, the most merciful. When he reached the end of the verse, he knelt on the rug, touching his nose and forehead to the ground. As he carried out his five prayers each day, he completed this pattern 34 times, rising and kneeling until the prayer was complete. As he rose the final time, he opened his eyes and froze. Something was moving in the valley below him. It was a four-legged creature, bigger than a horse, with mottled orange-brown fur peppered with black spots. It was standing on the riverbank and craning its unusually long neck down for a drink. As the beast lifted its head, Palamedes' breath caught in his throat. He was staring into the eyes of an enormous serpent. As soon as it stopped drinking, the strange barking sound started up. It was faint at first, but within moments it sounded like an entire pack of hounds. Palamedes heard a commotion behind him as King Pelinor came stumbling out of his tent. It's the abomination, he shouted. Saracen, ready the horses. But Palamedes still could not take his eyes off the beast. He couldn't be sure, but it certainly seemed to be staring right back at him. After a moment, it turned and slunk off into the forest, disappearing into the underbrush. While not every Arthurian legend gives the same physical description, the most common version of the questing beast is a hybrid blend of four creatures. It has the head of a serpent, the body of a leopard, the haunches of a lion, and the feet of a heart or deer. It's a discombobulating image that doesn't quite position the creature as a horrifying predator like the manticore or a noble beast. Like many chimeric hybrid monsters, its blend of animal parts suggests a theme of chaos and unnaturalness, but the primary emotion it conjures is a sense of strangeness. The questing beast is pursued by several knights throughout the Arthurian legends, but two figures have a stronger connection to the creature than any others. The first is Arthur's friend, King Pelinor, who's frequently seen pursuing the beast across the land. He tells anyone who will listen that hunting the beast is his personal family quest, and that only he or his offspring can kill it. But the knight most strongly associated with the questing beast is Sir Palamedes, a man who is notably not part of the Pelinor family, and therefore not one of the men bound by heritage to hunt the questing beast. 
Interestingly, Sir Palamedes is also one of a few Knights of the Round Table who are identified as a Saracen. Medieval European writers used the word Saracen as a broad term for Arab Muslims and any person who followed the faith of Islam. The presence of Muslim characters in the Arthurian legends is noteworthy considering the prevalent Christian themes that run throughout the tales. According to medieval literature professor Robert Rouse, writers like Thomas Mallory saw Islam as the antithesis of the Christian West and the Saracens as a powerful racial, cultural, and religious other. Islam was seen not just as an alternative religion to Christianity, but as its opposite and enemy. Author Alexander Bruce draws a connection between Palamedes' identity as a Saracen and the questing beast's bizarre physical form, stating, Sir Palamedes himself is a hybrid creature, a mixture of Saracen and a virtuous knight, just as the beast is a physical crossbreed. The implication is that no matter how good or virtuous Palamedes may be, there's an aspect of his identity that was seen as inherently wrong and unnatural. Palamedes pulled his thin blanket tight around his shoulders, huddling closer to the fire. The trees surrounding their camp served as a meager protection from the biting wind, and King Pelinor would not allow them to add more than a few branches to the fire. It had been weeks since they'd had any sign of the creature. The thick layer of snow that blanketed the forest floor made searching for tracks or fumets even more difficult than normal. Pelinor kept insisting that they were close, but Palamedes was convinced that they had lost the trail. He was beginning to wonder why it even mattered. Who did it kill? He asked suddenly, breaking the silence. King Pelinor looked up from his journal. What? He's wondering why we hunt the beast, Sir Bors explained through a leg of mutton. Pelinor glared at Palamedes as if he'd been struck. Hunting the beast Glatisan is my family's quest, he growled, voice dripping with disdain. Yes, but there must be a reason why it needs to be hunted to begin with, Palamedes pleaded. I presumed it was dangerous, but so far it seems to avoid human settlements entirely, so I thought perhaps it killed someone important? Pelinor's mouth curled into a cruel smile. So, you wish to understand the abomination. I warn you, Saracen, it is not a tale for the faint of heart. Palamedes leaned closer, eyes sparking with the glow of the fire. We are fortunate, then, that there are no such men here. Pelinor shut his journal and began the tale. Many years ago, in the land of Logress, there was a king named Epomenes. His wife bore him two children, a daughter who was the most beautiful girl in all the kingdom, and a son who was as handsome as he was gracious. Epomenes was determined that his heir should be well-educated, so he hired wise men and masters of every art to come to the castle and teach him. The prince was a quick learner, but his sister was sharper still. By the time she was 20, she had earned a reputation for wisdom and intelligence beyond her years. On most afternoons, she could be found on the palace steps, discussing one subject or another with the masters who had been her tutors. 
people would gather around to listen, marveling at her brilliance. Naturally, a significant portion of the girls' studies had been devoted to the Holy Scripture. There were few who could match her when it came to the histories of the saints and the matters of the church. But she was also a student of old religion. One of her masters was an old Pict enchanter, and he taught her about the gods and the nymphs of the woods, the arts of divination, and the secrets of necromancy. But the girl also had a secret. For as long as she had been old enough to love, she had loved none so much as her own brother. The princess had tried for years to bury her infatuation deep within her heart, but try as she might, she could not dispel her lustful thoughts. One night, she succumbed to temptation and crept down the hallway to his chamber. He was surprised to see her, and more surprised when she confessed her unnatural desires. The prince rejected her, righteous man that he was, to ensure that he would not succumb to the same vile thoughts that had corrupted her, he warned her that if she ever spoke such words again, he would see to it that she was burned at the stake. Humiliated and distraught, the princess fled to the forest. She fell to her knees beside a pool and wept. Though she was filled with shame, that pain was nothing compared to her broken heart. Her brother's words had only served to stoke the fires of her desire, and now she knew that she would never have him. It was then that she remembered the teachings of her picked master. She took a knife and pierced her breast, drawing a drop of her own blood. She dropped into the pool and called upon the evil one, offering herself in an unholy bargain. In return for her brother's heart, she would surrender her very soul. The pool boiled before her eyes. A figure rose from the depths and stepped onto dry land. He stood before the princess in the form of a beautiful man, naked and dripping in the sunlight. The devil smiled and took her hand. He was glad that she had called him, but he had a different price in mind. If she would lie with him but once, he would give her what she wanted. The princess was hesitant. Despite her brother's rejection, she did not wish to betray her love for him, but she could see no other way for them to be together, and so she agreed. As soon as they lay together, the princess forgot her love for her brother. She bound herself to the demon, replacing one unnatural desire for another. The devil was satisfied either way, for he had gotten what he wanted. The princess was pregnant. When King Epomenes saw his daughter's swollen belly, he demanded to know the identity of the father. The princess was terrified of what he might do if he knew the truth. So she spat out a vile lie, that her brother had broken into her room and forced himself upon her in the night. Epomenes sank into his throne as if he'd been struck. The prince was already on his feet, screaming that his sister was a liar. When the king finally found his voice, he ordered the boy to be silent. Then he turned to his daughter and told her to name a fair punishment. 
the princess looked at her brother, who'd been struck dumb by his father's words, she no longer felt anything resembling love for him. Have the dogs fast for seven days, she said, then throw him to them. The king turned to his guards and ordered it done, just as she had said. Of course, when the child was born, there was no hiding the truth. One look at the monstrous newborn told Epomenes how wrong he had been. It was not his son, but his daughter who was the unnatural one. So he decided to give her the same punishment that had befallen her brother. Both the princess and the monstrous child were thrown to the dogs. They went for the woman first, for they had taken a liking to human flesh. As the devil spawn watched them devour its mother, it slunk into the far reaches of the pen, trembling with fear. And there it found a hole, a gap in the drain, just large enough for it to fit. Before the dogs noticed it, it slipped through and escaped into the sewers. King Pelinor leaned back in his seat, a look of satisfaction on his face. Palamedes stared into the fire, contemplating the strange tale. And that is why the beast makes that hateful sound, said the king. It mimics the sound it heard as its mother was torn apart before its eyes. The howls are a reminder of her sin and its own vile nature. Of course, if you ask Sir Bors, the prince did rape his sister, and the beast had nothing to do with any of it. Palamedes turned to Sir Bors, who had finally finished his mutton chop. He tore off the last scrap of meat and tossed the bone into the fire. So why do you hunt the beast? Palamedes asked. Sir Bors looked confused. Have you seen the thing? He asked. The story of the questing beast's conception cements its role as a symbol of all things unnatural and evil. We're told that it's a child of the devil, born out of incestuous lust. But this troubling backstory is more than just a dark note to explain a bizarre monster. Its true purpose becomes clearer in the context of the broader Arthurian legends. The moment when the questing beast appears to King Arthur by the forest pool is an important one. He's just slept with the wife of King Lot, a woman named Morgaze. When Arthur returns home after seeing the questing beast, the wizard Merlin tells him that he's committed a terrible crime against God and nature. Though he didn't know it, Morgaze is none other than Arthur's estranged half-sister, she later gives birth to his villainous son, Mordred. At the end of the story, Arthur and Mordred mortally wound one another on the battlefield, bringing about the end of Camelot. By introducing the beast when he does, Mallory cements the questing beast as a harbinger of doom and a reminder of the consequences of sin. Alexander Bruce argues that the beast symbolizes that a relationship between people is not right, that two elements which should have remained separate have been mixed, and that chaos will result from the unnatural situation at hand. In this context, the beast's connection with the Saracen knight Palamedes is even more troubling. 
The implication, one could argue, is that his own identity as a Muslim knight mixes two conflicting elements. It could suggest that he's like the questing beast, a creature that needs to be corrected or destroyed. Coming up, the quest takes Palamedes and Pelinor to the breaking point. Now, back to the story. Palamedes was dreaming. At least, he thought he was. His beard and hair were short and trim, as they had been the day he left Camelot. He could not remember how much time had passed since he had joined Pelinor's hunt for the questing beast, or even since he had heard the tale of its unholy conception. The dream was the same one he'd had for weeks. He was chasing the questing beast through a dense forest, but in his dream, it was not the strange abomination with the body of a leopard, the hindquarters of a lion, the feet of a deer, and the head of a serpent. Instead, it was a small, white creature, roughly the size of a fox. It darted through the brush at lightning speed, always a few yards ahead of him, always disappearing around a tree or into a thicket so that he never glimpsed it for more than the briefest instant. The only resemblance it had to the actual beast was the strange baying sound it emitted. Palamedes crashed through a thorn bush and found the beast lying on the forest floor. It was trembling and writhing in obvious pain. Its chest rose and fell with labored breaths. He crept toward the tiny white animal, careful not to startle it. The barking sound grew louder, and Palamedes realized that it was coming from the creature's belly. The skin of its stomach was moving, as if a large parasite was writhing beneath the creature's flesh. There was a tearing sound and a flash of red. The head of a hound pup burst from the creature's stomach, jaws snapping hungrily as it ate its way free of its mother. Palamedes woke with a start. Sunlight was leaking through the entrance of his tent. He had overslept. He stumbled out of his tent with his prayer mat under his arm and groggily made his way toward the edge of the lake. They'd been camped there since the start of spring, having lost the questing beast's trail during the winter. King Pelinor was adamant that he'd seen the creature near the lake before and hoped that it would return to drink so that they might take up the quest again. There were now only two tents standing around the campsite. One morning a few weeks past, Palamedes had awoken to find that Sir Bors was gone. The giant knight had packed his things and left during the night without a word. Palamedes had thought about leaving every day since then. He was now convinced that the hunt was pointless, but he had promised Arthur that he would see it through. The only way out of the monotonous hell he had found himself in was to finish the quest. He would find the beast and ensure that Pelinor killed it. Then he would return to Camelot and finally receive a more worthy task. Palamedes unfolded his prayer rug and began to step through the motions of the dawn prayer. As he stood for the third time, he heard a movement behind him. He turned, and a wooden cudgel crashed against his skull. 
Light flooded Palamedes' vision as a searing pain shot across his temple. He staggered and fell. An instant later, he felt a hand grip his lapel, and then he was being dragged across the ground. I finally realized why I lost the beast's trail, King Pelinor's voice echoed in Palamedes' ear. As his vision returned, he saw the old man's face hovering above him, straining with effort. Pelinor was pulling Palamedes across the rocky beach. For a long time, I wondered why God would send me an infidel for this holy quest. Then it occurred to me, you were never meant to aid in its capture. You are a test to prepare me for my final task. Before I can slay the beast, I must correct the man. Icy water splashed Palamedes' body as Pelinor dragged him into the lake. He tried to push away from the old king, but he was still too disoriented from the blow to his head to put up much of a fight. When the water was up to their waists, Pelinor turned his eyes skyward and shouted in a booming voice, Lamb of God, by the mystery of your death and resurrection, bathe this child in light. Give him the new life of baptism and welcome him into your holy church. Before he could protest, Palamedes was plunged into the frigid water. The knight flailed and thrashed, but Pelinor's grip was surprisingly strong. Palamedes let out a scream of panicked frustration, and icy water rushed into his throat. The blinding light that had consumed his vision moments earlier faded as darkness pressed in around him. Palamedes slowly went limp, allowing himself to sink to the floor of the lake. His hand closed around a large, round stone. Palamedes exploded upward, swinging the rock with all his strength. He heard a sickening crunch, and Pelinor released him. When he moved his hands away, Palamedes saw that the king's face was smeared in scarlet blood, and his nose was twisted in a shocking angle. He glared at Palamedes and drew a dagger from his belt. The adversaries stood facing one another in the water. Pelinor gripped his knife, Palamedes his rock. Before either man could make their move, the familiar barking sound echoed across the lake. Pelinor spun toward the woods to the north from which the cry had risen. He stared into the trees, head cocked like a retriever that had caught the scent of its prey. Then he turned and bolted in the direction of the camp. Palamedes stared after Pelinor in disbelief, his hands trembling with rage. He dropped the stone and ran after the king. Moments later, Palamedes was careening through the forest on his steed, close on Pelinor's tail. Branches whipped his arms and face, but he refused to slow. Soon he was neck and neck with the king. Pelinor glanced at him, eyes alight with cold fury. The beast is mine, he shouted over their pounding hooffalls. Palamedes ignored him, urging his horse onwards. He pushed ahead of the king, quickly overtaking him. 
Then he saw it, a flash of mottled orange-brown fur peppered with black spots. The beast was dead ahead of him. It hurtled through the forest, leaping over thickets and fallen trees with surprising grace for an animal of its size. Palamedes' grip on his reins tightened as the sound of barking filled his ears. A smile spread across his face. He was gaining on it. A woman's chilling scream suddenly echoed through the forest, startling Palamedes. He pulled up on his reins, bringing his horse to a dead stop. An instant later, King Pelinor hurtled past him, continuing after the questing beast. Within moments, the sound of galloping hooves had faded. Palamedes scanned the forest. When the woman's scream echoed through the trees again, he took off toward it. He followed the screams for quite a ways until he emerged from the forest onto a high cliff. As he looked down into the rocky gorge below, he saw the source. A maiden stood on an outcropping, surrounded by a pack of snarling wolves. They had cornered her. Away from her, you beasts, Palamedes shouted. Neither the woman nor the wolves seemed to notice him. He jumped off his horse and began to climb down as quickly as he could. But the cliff was steep, and they were a long ways off. By the time he reached the bottom, the wolves were picking the flesh from the woman's bones. Palamedes brandished his sword and screamed at the animals. They snarled angrily and seemed to size him up. But after a moment, they slunk away, leaving him with the woman's remains. Palamedes fell to his knees beside her body, shaking with grief and exhaustion. He had failed. He sat there for a long time until the sun was high overhead and the corpse began to stink. It was then that he heard the clink of metal footsteps. Palamedes looked up to see Pelinor approaching. He held his helmet under his arm, and his face was bathed with sweat. When he saw Palamedes, he began to run toward him. "'Lend me your horse, Saracen,' the king called. "'I chased the beast until my own collapsed. Quick now, we must not lose the trail.' Palamedes turned away from the king, gesturing to the cliff. "'I left her up there,' he said." uncaring. When Pelinor had almost reached him, he saw the corpse and froze. That woman, he said in a shaky voice, she was the one screaming in the woods? Palamedes nodded. King Pelinor's head dropped. I ignored her, he whispered. I swore an oath to defend the innocent, yet I continued on my way. It is my fault that she is dead." Palamedes considered pointing out that he had tried and failed to save the woman, but it seemed pointless. The king knelt beside her, cradling her head in his arms. I will take her body to Camelot. She deserves a Christian burial. Palamedes looked at him in surprise. What about the beast? he asked. Pelinor shook his head. I am no longer worthy of this quest, he said. I must atone for my sins. After that is done, I doubt very much that I will have time left for anything else. 
Palamedes' eyes drifted up to the cliff. He could see his horse grazing at the top. He thought of the brief moment when he'd seen the questing beast ahead of him through the trees, when he'd been so close on its tail that he could taste victory. Never in his life had he felt more alive or more sure that he was where he belonged. Someone should go after it, he said. It was Pelinor's turn to look surprised. He stared at Palamedes for a long moment, then reached into his satchel. He took out the leather journal and tossed it at the knight's feet. Palamedes watched as the king scooped the woman's ruined body into his arms. Farewell, Saracen, he said, and then he wandered off into the gorge. It was almost sundown by the time Palamedes made it back to the top of the cliff. His horse had been waiting patiently. He climbed into the saddle and took the reins, steering her back into the forest. As he rode, he scanned the trees for any sign of broken branches or tracks, hoping to find the spot where he'd lost the trail. It was nearly dark when he saw something lying on the forest floor. Palamedes leaned sideways in his saddle, reaching down to scoop it up with one arm. Fumets, Palamedes whispered. A grin spread across his face as he stared at the dung pellet. Then he slipped it into his saddle sack and spurred his horse forward into the underbrush. His quest had begun. For centuries, scholars and historians have struggled to come to a consensus around the meaning of the questing beast. Many theories have been suggested, but they're confounded by elements of the beast that change from story to story. The 13th century French Arthurian romance Perlevaux gives the questing beast a distinctly different physical description, saying that it's as white as new-fallen snow, bigger than a hare but smaller than a fox. In this version, the sounds coming from its belly are the howls of its 12 pups, who are eating it from inside out. A character within the text explains that this version of the beast is an allegory for Christ being put to death by the 12 tribes of Israel. The more common hybrid version of the monster is a bit less difficult to explain. Scholars have made connections between its story and the biblical beast of the Book of Revelation, as well as the Greek monster Scylla. But ultimately, none of these explanations can satisfactorily address the beast's many contradictions. In her 1989 essay on the questing beast, Catherine Batt concluded that attempts to comprehend the creature were essentially futile. She saw the beast as a series of signifiers without the satisfaction of ultimately recovering an intelligible meaning. This sentiment was echoed by medieval literature professor Kara L. McShane in 2010, when she stated that the questing beast invites interpretation while evading explanation. Ultimately, the questing beast is too complicated and contradictory a creature to be distilled into a single message. And yet, nearly every story in which it appears remarks on the same topic, the nature and importance of the knight's quest. 
One of the major themes of Thomas Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur is the conflict between chivalry and the realities of courtly life, specifically courtly romance. He depicted Arthur's knights as paragons of virtue in a dangerous and chaotic world. But despite their heroic deeds, their story is a tragedy. Camelot eventually crumbles, Arthur dies, and the knights of the round table are killed and scattered. Along the way, the author shows that the seeds of their destruction are sown in minor sins and mistakes. The hunt for the questing beast reminds us that the fight for chivalry can be an endless and, to a certain extent, futile task. Mallory saw chivalry as something that a knight had to endlessly strive toward, but that he could never truly achieve. That's why Pelinor spends his entire life pursuing the beast only to fail. The point of the quest is not to slay the beast, but the fact that he devotes his life to it. In the end, he leaves his task to the next generation, hoping that they will learn from his mistakes. In the 13th century post-Vulgate Arthuriad, the Saracen knight Palamedes pursues the questing beast for many years before finally cornering it near a lake. In a scene brimming with baptism imagery, he chases it into the water on horseback and runs it through with his lance. As the writhing beast sinks beneath the waves, flames erupt from the surface and the lake begins to boil. When the boiling subsides, the beast is gone. So perhaps good Sir Palamedes did eventually accomplish what several generations of Pelinors could not. Even so, his journey as a knight-errant would not have been over. His oath to Arthur and Camelot to the virtues of chivalry required him to serve one noble task after another, to defend the innocent and the weak, and to uphold justice and fairness wherever possible. The questing beast serves as a reminder that that task is never complete, and that as strange and wondrous as the destination might be, it is truly the journey that matters most. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Andrew Kelleher, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson.